Welcome back to Love, Life, and Legacy, the podcast dedicated to helping you navigate these hyper-sexualized times of ours. And in today's episode, I had such a good time talking to this guy. He is one of the smartest people I've ever had the opportunity to sit down with and pick his brain. And he, his depth of knowledge is so helpful. Like you ask him more questions about a certain topic and he just goes deeper and deeper and he elaborates further and further. And he helps make sense of this wild world. His name is William Haynes. He's from the United Kingdom. He's a renowned lecturer. He's a super smart guy. And one thing to know when you're listening to this, I would love for you to hear how out of my depth I was speaking to him. Because day in and day out, I'm either speaking to my three sons or I speak to a bunch of early 20-year-olds trying to motivate them. And I'm not normally in the company of, say, a 60-plus-year-old man who's highly adept in the art and crafts of intellectualism. So I felt like I was speaking gobbledygook at many points throughout this conversation. If you listen to the candor and the tone of my voice, I sounded like I was in a perpetual cardiac arrest throughout. And the reason was I was. I was just trying to catch up to him. But he gave me some insight in this episode that I just think is so incredibly valuable, tying together some very big ideas in terms of culturally how we ended up here in terms of sex, but also how we can move forward. A very clear action step is at the very end of this episode. What you can do in terms of a takeaway to activate some very clear power in your life. So please listen. Please listen to the whole thing. It's a longer episode. It's about an hour, but you won't regret it. You will feel smarter just hearing him speak in that British accent of his. So please welcome William Haynes and this wonderful conversation. All right, welcome back, everybody. Today, I'm going to be talking to somebody that I met a few times in Europe. I met him in Germany, I believe, but he's not from there. He's from the UK, the United Kingdom. And if you could see him, if you're watching the video, you can tell that he is very stylish and he's something, he's got a beard worth striving for and a hat worth stealing. Very cool guy. But more importantly, so we would meet and I would find myself engaging in conversations with this guy and really just asking more and more questions, getting more and more excited the more that he spoke because I realized his depth of knowledge, especially as it pertains to culture and understanding like how we got to this weird, confused place in our society. Because it's not by accident, there's a series of decisions, whether they were conscious or unconscious, that led us to this point in history. And especially as, you know, like with sex, with campuses, teaching the stuff that they do, it all came from somewhere. And for a lot of us, it's very confusing, right? It's like, how could we ever get to this point? But to help unravel this, conversations with Uncle William, I call him, have always been very insightful. So all the way from the United Kingdom, somewhere in England, we will find out where <laughs> is William Haynes. Welcome, William. Thank you. Which Thank part you of much, England are you in specifically? I live in, in London, just on the outskirts. But uh, where I live is on a 400-year-old cottage, which was in the countryside, but then London expanded and cottage is still here. And the city but, ate uh, <laughs> the countryside. But a lot of the farmland got built on. Got it. I like it because just on the other side of the road, there's a stream. And there's, on the other side of the stream is a floodplain. So it doesn't flood this side, it floods the other side. So there's lots of... <laughs> that means on the other side of the stream, on the other side of the river, on the other side of the road, there's lots of fields because that's where... 
they can't not allowed to build there because my so you can look out into nature you're still that's you right know. yes yes and i feel and just walk across the road along the stream feel like i'm in the countryside and then there's some woods and everything so yeah that's it seems like most depictions of the future are something like that it's very modern yeah. but there's some remembering you know there's some semblance of a memory of nature <laughs> that you can touch you know like yeah. an outdoor museum makes such a difference being able to walk out and well, especially compared to London, where you walk out into somebody's chewing gum and a bunch of honking <laughs> horns. Yeah. yeah. So out there in this cottage of yours, do you think a lot now that you're at an age where you have a gray beard that you can stroke? <laughs> do you find yourself thinking a lot or where does this wisdom come from? Do you read a lot or just pondering a lot or where do you, how do you spend your time, your intellectual time? Well, Yes, I do think a lot. I have read a lot in the past. I'm not reading as much as I used to. The reason I got a beard, I'm on chemo at the moment. And oh, wow. uh, just a year and a half ago, I was diagnosed with stage four bowel cancer to um, maybe think a lot about life and mm -hmm. what I'm going to do. I spend quite a lot of time gardening now. We've got a new garden. The first time I ever had a garden of my own. So I spend a lot of time there. And it's great for relaxing, but also for thinking. But in terms of my ideas, basically, they've evolved really over the last 45 50 years, really, I would say. first started thinking about these things when I was 13. Whoa, really? Yeah. In 1970, I had the opportunity as a schoolboy to go on the very first tourist group that was ever allowed to go to the Soviet Union. And so it was communist. And they thought, well, we'll let some schoolboys in, find a harmless. So I went there and went to Leningrad and Moscow. And I was just profoundly struck by how other everything was. Everywhere there were police, there were soldiers. You couldn't take photographs of what you wanted to take photographs of. All the churches were closed. You couldn't ask the in-tourist guide certain kind of questions because, you know, you couldn't go there. And we went to Red Square and there's St. Basil's Cathedral. And I said, well, can we go there to visit it? Oh, no, it's closed. Why? Oh, for repairs. So instead we went into uh, Lenin's mausoleum. And I couldn't understand why there was a queue thousands of people queuing up on Red Square to go into the squat marble building, granite building. Yeah, because we were a tourist group, we were taken right to the very front and we were told it's an incredible honor. And so we filed in and there inside this glass case was Lenin embalmed oh. and people were coming along to look at him and pay him their respects. They've been queuing up for hours. And I thought, how weird. <laughs> and everything was so other and so different to England. And so when I went back home, then as a teenager, I started trying to figure out why is it so different? Why is it so oppressive? Why is it so stifling? Why, you know, all these questions arose when you experience something completely different to your own background, your own upbringing, your own country. And then and probably I, unsettling too, right? Like it must have just been very restrictive and unperceivable possibly to a 13-year-old understanding, right. but you yeah. would be able to sense that something is off. Yeah, because you couldn't go to the shops where you wanted to go. And when you went to the tourist shop, there was nothing to buy. There's nothing worth buying in terms of souvenirs. So when I went home to England and I came across, you know, people said it's communism. I said, what's that? Anyway, somehow I ended up reading Solzhenitsyn's book, A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, when I think when I was 14 or 15. And suddenly I realized this isn't history. This isn't what was going on 500 years ago. Suddenly I realized today, while I'm breathing 
the air of freedom and can think and read whatever I want. There's hundreds of thousands of people in the gulag just for objecting to the government or saying the wrong thing or just being of the wrong class or having the wrong parents or believing in God. And suddenly they get 15 or 25 years. And for me, this was shocking. Why is it like this? And that's really where my life started, I would say, this encounter with this extreme level of suffering and oppression, trying to figure out why and felt I have a moral duty to try and dedicate my life to doing something about it. I would have to say, though, that of this group of young men who went and had the same experience that you did, you're probably the only one that was so struck that you felt the need to research and that made a life of learning about this suffering. You're probably in a very unique place in your own journey to be able to be struck so deeply. Yes, I mean, it was a life-changing experience, I would say, set me off on this journey, which I'm still on. Well, I mean, that's a lot of our conversations centered around communism and how it's morphed and manifested in different ways in society. And in terms of like High Noon's real focus in sexuality and and wholeness and fulfillment and connection, connection being the goal here, how has communism or that line of thinking influenced the way that we see sex or talk about sex or experience Mm -hmm. it? Because I don't know if you this is true. You might be able to validate or invalidate this, but a friend of mine was telling me that he read a communist manifesto and talking about how they choose to influence society in a modern setting. And one form of control to kind of hypnotize society was pornography. That was part of their kind of expressed manifesto. And I never double checked that. He was very sure that he read that, but <laughs> I don't know if sex has ever been formally used as a means of control to subdue a people, or if it's just a byproduct of like our human urges manifesting in a weird, suppressed kind of society. Uh, I mean, it is interesting. I mean, I was later on, I went there in 1992 with my family. We lived in Russia for seven years in Moscow. And I was actually writing a series of textbooks there for the spiritual moral education of young people in a post-communist society. One of the books was more on personal development. The second book was all about love and marriage and family. Yeah, so I thought a lot about these things and the influence of communism. In terms of pornography, I've heard that as well, but I've never... In Russia itself, it's very... The Soviet Union itself, certainly after the 1920s, it's incredibly puritanical about these matters. But certainly the previous roots, certainly if you read Marx Engels' Communist Manifesto, it's incredibly critical of the what it describes the bourgeois family. And so this system of oppression. And so he was, you know, very critical about the dysfunctional family, which he said was very patriarchal. And man owned all the property. If a woman who had property got married, then all the property that she might have inherited from her parents was transferred to him. In England, up until the 1950s, a woman was not allowed to open her own bank account without permission, either from her father or from her husband. And that was, women were often treated in that sense as property. And so the Marxist critique of that dysfunctional, you could say, fallen family was very insightful. It wasn't critiquing an ideal family, it's just critiquing that kind of oppressive patriarchal family which has existed through much of history, where women were abused and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Children were the property of their father and could be sold into slavery because he owned them, just like he owned his wife and could sell his wife into slavery. So that's what the Marxist critique was of. But then they didn't have a sort of decent kind of alternative or vision of a good nuclear family with a loving husband and wife 
And so instead, they said the family itself is the problem. So what happened with and marriage then is the problem because it's inherently oppressive. Yeah. So when the communists took over in Russia, then one of the things they did was to abolish marriage laws. Just like when during the French Revolution, they decided to abolish a lot of the moral codes on sexuality, which are embodied in legislation. So, for example, after the French Revolution, incest was no longer a crime. So that's like going back to Leviticus. That's going back thousands of years. That's right. Because they progress. Yeah. So, so this is Christian. It's oppressive. We want to get rid of all that stuff. So they abolish the laws on incest. I mean, the reason I'm saying this is that just last week in France there was a discussion about this. Maybe we ought to make incest illegal again. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) What that? What a daring approach. Yes. So it's still legal. Yes. In France. Okay. Yes. And so in Russia, then they abolished marriage, and then the woman's commissar. Her name now, Kolontai. She said we should abolish marriage and replace it with free love in relationships between men and women. So there's no marriage, no commitment, none of the oppressive stuff, just free love. Obviously, the results were pretty devastating, especially for women. A lot of women started objecting the fact that they were left pregnant without anybody to take responsibility to look after them and their children. And this was the way it was right up until I think the 1930s. I met somebody there while I was there, a very interesting lady. Her parents were from Belarusia. Then during the 19th century, they emigrated to New Hampshire in America. And then when the communists came to power in Russia, then they went back to the Soviet Union as good communists. And she had been born in America. But anyway, her parents were very idealistic. They moved there. And he was a professor of agriculture, set up an institute there. And she went to the local, one of the first young pioneers and Komsomol and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. She was a very brilliant pianist. She went to the conservatory. Anyway, when she was an adult, she met a communist from Britain who was there doing business, and they got married. But there was no marriage laws, and they had a child. But then he was accused of being a spy, so he was deported. This was during Stalin time, and he returned to the UK. He had no idea what happened to his wife, and he settled back in England, Cambridge, I think got married, had another family, and had no idea. She, on the other hand, had been deported to Siberia, the exile in Siberia, where she had another son, and eventually she moved back. So anyway, so I met her daughter, a daughter of her whose father had been this British citizen. And so this American lady, she'd been stuck in the Soviet Union. She wasn't allowed to progress beyond a primary school teacher in terms of teaching music because her husband She'd been exiled during that time. And then she wasn't able to get out of the country. So it wasn't until Perestroika, she's finally able to approach the American embassy. She's finally able to get proof of her, that she'd a birth certificate, proving she'd been born in America. And then she could get an American passport. And then eventually I was able to help her to emigrate and go back to America. But her daughter, though, couldn't. Her father was British, but because there was no marriage law, then even though her parents were married, she couldn't prove that anything, even though it said on... And so the way it was, okay, so the British authorities understanding this said, okay, if you can produce seven, I think it's seven people who remember your parents and that they were married, even though there's no legal marriage that they were married, then you will give you British citizenship. But of course, by this stage in the 1990s, they're all dead. Even though her mother was American, her father's British, she was stuck there. Anyway, eventually she was able to get American citizenship through her mother's, even though she preferred to get British. And so that was the kind of reality, the kind of trying to abolish these kind of marriage laws and the kind of consequences for people 60, 70 years later. It's really horrendous and awful. 
Yeah. And short-sighted. I think a lot of the time, these new ideas, they come from a place of feeling stuck. We're stuck. This is not working. So let's throw away everything, the good and the bad, start from scratch without any evidence that this is a remotely good idea, but it's very emotional. And we can tell that things are not broken. And that exists in every society, every culture, even every organization. Church, you know, every religion goes through something similar, this reformation. But it's like that balance between not throwing away the old, but modifying, not just obliterating. Right. And that's what we're seeing today, too, with a lot of cultural norms is like, hey, let's throw away everything that we know without any real evidence that this is a good idea, but it feels right. right? It's kind of scary stuff. And it's, you know, history has already repeated itself too many times for us to not see where that ends up you know, culturally. So we were discussing before the philosophical origins of the distorted views of sexuality. It's like a long way of saying this. Like we can see already in that story that, you know, the short-sightedness of the reactionary policymaking and all that is, you don't even factor in practical issues like, you know, residency through parents. And like, it's some very, you know, very logistical reasons why marriage is good. There's also very practical reasons, you know, like, so how did, you know, we get to this point sexually? Where did a lot of this distortion come from? Because in America, we've talked on this podcast about it. In America, for sure, the Puritan spirit that you alluded to was very strong here. And it created a lot of dysfunctionality in the area of sexuality because it's very repressive and there weren't many outlets if things weren't going right. So it's kind of like that. They call it kireru in Japan, where it's just like this, the boiling pot that's just eventually going to explode kind of situation. And so the result was the hippies who were just like, let's throw it all out the window and reinvent the wheel. And then they just, that fell apart quickly. So where do you feel like the philosophical under, like where things started to unravel and we started to really go off kilter? Yeah, well, I mean, people often talk about, people often say, well, it's the Bible story of Adam and Eve. But I don't think it is there at all, because within the Bible, the the equality of men and women is emphasized many, many times. Page one, God created man in his image and likeness, male and female. So there you have the equality of masculinity and femininity. Both of them are good. Both of them are expressions of the divine. That's page one. That's equal value and sacredness, you could say, of masculine and feminine. And then fast forward into Exodus. You should honor your father and your mother. So again, within the family, equal authority and value of the father and the mother within the family. So the biblical vision is not patriarchal. It's not the man is represents God. It's not the man is the one who owns his wife. It's completely different to that when you actually unpick it all. So for my question is, why do people get this idea that the Bible is like that? So obviously, there's some kind of assumptions that people have about the nature of the relationship between men and women, which they're then, I would say, reading into the Bible. And so the Bible then is one source of assumptions about life and the relation of God and the relationship between God and human beings. But there are also other places where a lot of our assumptions in the European tradition come from. And that's basically from Greek myths and Greek stories. And people have been reading Jordan Peterson a lot in his book. He wrote another book, Maps of Meaning. I don't know if you've come across it. Seen it, haven't read it. No, it's really interesting. It's hard work. It's a really solid piece of academic research. Anyway, so he's not unique in this. I mean, Joseph Campbell came up with this about the importance of myths and someone called Alistair McIntyre, English 
later became a Catholic philosopher, talked about stories. And, you know, that basically we are storytelling creatures. Because naturally, if you have children, you know that they're always asking, really, always asking why. And you answer the question, they just say why. And you answer that, and they say why. So just born with these questions, wanting to try and make sense of the nature of reality. So how do you explain to people why is this here? Will you tell a story? Why is this like this? Well, there's a story behind why it is like this. Why do we do this? Well, there's a story behind it. And basically, there's a story behind everything. When you can put something in the context of a story, then it becomes meaningful. It's no longer random. It's no longer nihilistic in that sense. It has a meaning. And so, of course, from, you know, from the beginning of time, people have asked the question, why are we here? Where did the world come from? And people in different parts of the world have come up with different stories to answer those kind of questions. And these different stories, we could call them myths, explain about God or gods, the world, the relationship between God and the world, about men and women and the relationship between men and women. And you can see one of those stories is the story of Adam and Eve. But you can find other stories in other cultures which also try to express something about the relationship between God and man and woman and the world. And some of these stories are really quite dysfunctional, dystopian, I would say. Is that a reflection of where people were at when they're telling these stories to try to explain their own dysfunction? Yes, I would say so. They're trying to explain also, of course, well, why is there evil in the world? Why is there suffering in the world? How do we explain that? How do we explain the fact that nature seems to be okay, but human beings do all these terrible things to each other and to nature? So yeah, so these, they appear as stories, and then sometimes they get transferred into philosophy. So for example, the Greeks, you know, okay, this happens. Do we have free will or not? You know, this is obviously a question. Am I free to do whatever I want, or am I determined by something? And so, you know, lots of Greek plays investigate this, like the story of Oedipus Rex. There's this King Laos and his wife, I don't remember her name now. They have a boy. Then somebody comes along and says, well, when your son grows up, he's going to kill his father, marry his mother. What a horrendous thing to hear. Your son's going to grow up, going to kill his father, marry his mother. They think, we're never going to let this take place. So they say to one of their servants, you know, take this little boy, take our son and drown him. So, you know, the servant doesn't have the heart to do that. So instead of that, he takes him for miles and just leaves him outside a shepherd's hut. And the shepherd looks after the son, and eventually he's brought up in another palace. Anyway, one day, the father and mother find out that actually their son hadn't been drowned, hadn't been put to death. And the father thinks, well, I'd better make sure this prophecy doesn't take place. I'm going to leave the palace. I'm going to wander around, became basically a wanderer. Anyway, the son also decides that he wants to go on a journey. So he travels around Greece. He happens to meet this old man at a crossroads, again, an argument and a fight, and he ends up killing this old man. He carries on wandering along and he comes to this city and there's a sphinx there and he solves this riddle. And then as a reward, he's able to marry the queen. And then later on, somebody comes along and explains something. And then he discovers and he finds out, actually, he would killed his father and he'd married his mother. And he basically goes on horrendous. The meaning of this story is there is fate and you cannot escape your fate. So that's yeah. like, in that sense, the future is closed. It doesn't matter what you do the outcome's always going to be the same because it's all determined. So in the Greeks, it was fate, Moira. Later, this, but these kind of ideas then entered into Christianity as predestination. From God is predestined, whether you go to heaven or you go to hell, it doesn't matter what you do, the outcome is already decided by God. It's all part of God's plan. And then this feeds then, this basic assumption about the nature of reality 
then feeds into things like scientific determinism. If we knew everything, we'd be able to predict the future perfectly. If we knew the place of every single atom because of the laws of physics, the future then is contained within the present. There's no free will. The free will then just becomes an illusion. You think you're making a decision, but actually all these chemicals in your head are just following the laws of physics and chemistry. And you think you're free, but actually it's all predestined, it's all predictable. So this idea of fate then leads into predestination, leads into scientific determinism, economic determinism, which is what Marxism was about. Oh, you can't expect me to be any different. I'm determined by my past. This basic assumption about the nature of reality from this kind of story. So you can see this kind of story then, whereas in the biblical story in Adam and Eve, as God says to Adam and Eve, don't eat the fruit. If you do, you're going to die. So God says to them, this is the way the world works. If you eat this fruit, you're going to die. So he gives them the choice. They have free will. They can choose whether to eat the fruit or not to eat the fruit. That's their choice. And so embedded in the biblical understanding is human beings have free will. That's a basic assumption about the nature. The future's not closed. The future's open. My past may have been horrendous, but I can change the way I think. I can change the way I feel. I can change this and I can change my future. Whereas the Greek view about fate, doesn't matter what you do, the outcome's already predestined. So the story then becomes embodied in certain philosophical assumptions about the nature of reality. And it's the same about sexuality as well. A certain story, Greek stories about sexuality, and they also become transferred into European culture. And I would say a lot of these Bible stories then are read through the lens of a distorted view of sexuality, which has come from the Greeks, not from the Bible. Whoa, 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 whoa. There's a lot. You just said a lot. A lot of important stuff. So my understanding is if you really subscribe to this predetermined worldview, and it is interesting because there are people like Richard Dawkins who are self-proclaimed science-driven men who also have that predeterminism, that sense that if they sound very religious when they speak some of these people, because it yeah. seems like all that kind of worldview, all of those worldviews seem to lend themselves to like, well, it doesn't matter anyway, kind of like a nihilism or at least a pacifism, because like, what am I to do if everything is already foretold? Yeah, it can lead to that. It seems almost embedded in the worldview just because you kind of throw your hands in the air because like, oh, I guess this is, I don't have any say in the matter anyway. But in yeah. terms of sexuality, do you feel like there is a certain level of sexual nihilism that prevalent in our culture these days where, you know, it doesn't really matter. Before, it used to be a big point of shame if you were to be caught in some sort of sexual scandal. People are now, young people are willingly putting themselves online sexually to make money. There's websites specifically, it's called Porn 2.0. And this yeah. is the new paradigm for pornography yeah. that they just don't even care. It's not, yeah. They're like, I can make a thousand dollars. Why not? You know, and it, but to me, that's just a form of nihilism where you don't even feel the potential future repercussions because you just don't feel anything in a sense. Yeah, you become numbed. Yeah. I don't mean to say that that's everybody, but there is this really strong pull in that direction where pornography lends itself to numbing yourself to if you're a viewer, but also the people in the industry are often on drugs or whatever. So is this stemming from somewhere or is this just this machine that's evolving and this is the natural evolution of such a self-destructive machine where in order to create this porn machine, we right. have to put humans in it and they have to come out on the other end, probably worse off, not better off. 
Okay. I mean, a lot of this nowadays is sort of Instagram and pornography is part of it, but people showing pictures of they're doing this or doing that or the other, and very much about image, what you look like on the outside. So where's that concern about the outside that your image is what counts? Where does that come from? So again, this is basically a very Hellenistic Greek view. Okay. So the Greeks then, they were into architecture, into art, into sculpture, and extraordinary beautiful sculptures of the human form. And then, of course, they would exercise in the nude. The Olympic Games was always done in the nude way back when. This contrasts very much with the sort of biblical view, where what was important is not what you look like on the outside, but what was going on on the inside. So that expressed in things like hearing the word of God. That's you listen. The important thing, truth comes through listening to the word of God and to thinking. And whereas uh, it's not like the truth is out there, you know, picture never lies, that kind of idea. That's all from the Greek. So the biblical view is always like that. And so that's why you know, the Middle East people would always dress very modestly because they're concerned you should be evaluating me, not according to what I look like or my physical dimensions or my statistics or whatever, but you should be evaluating me according to my conversation, what's going on, on the inside. That's really interesting. So with the decline of the biblical worldview, comes the rise of the reappearance of the Hellenistic worldview. All that counts is what's on the outside, beauty. And it doesn't matter what's on the inside. I was going to ask, have there been kind of like parallel histories where there's been this push and pull between those two worldviews, the, say, biblical worldview and the Hellenistic worldview? And they've maybe taken different shape throughout history, but when one is more dominant it's more obvious in culture that the focus is on the internal and vice versa. Yes, the one which is most Hebraic in one sense, you could say is fundamentalist Islam. It's the rejection, the denial of modernity. The greatest moments in human culture have been where people could synthesize the two, where you could take the Greek forms of art, but infuse them with Christian values. And then you get Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, the great composers, because they're taking the forms of Greek art, but they're infusing them with Christian values. But then with the decline of Christian culture, you still got the same forms, but they're now infused with other values. That's so perfect. Because, you know, we were just in this podcast, we're continually trying to understand ourselves. We're not just trying to educate. We're trying to really sincerely like understand where are we at culturally, where are we at historically. And one thing that we've noticed is that the repression of sexuality always causes societal ills, but also the full expression unfettered also leads to disaster. So that balance, that scary, frightening balance in the middle is where we're trying to head. I mean, I feel like that's kind of where two parents were trying to take us, you know, as much as they could. But culturally, yeah, we're really being confronted because if you look, there's so many people now who have been overexposed to sexuality. They're oversexed. And we're seeing a society that has never existed before because even in the time of the Greeks, they might have had orgies or whatever, but they didn't have a cell phone. They didn't have millions of people. Oh, that's true, yeah. (laughs) Yes, that's true, yeah. So we're kind of experiencing the other side of numbness where you're just empty, completely like further past numb is empty, where you just have nothing left to give. That's really interesting that the fear of sexuality is what drove the kind of the Puritan expression of sexuality. But the fear of monogamy, it seems like, or the commitment, love, giving yourself, the fear of the internal. So it's, I guess, the fear of the external form of sexuality is the Puritans and the form of the internal connection of sexuality 
fears or drives the kind of Hellenistic worldview. So that balance of fearing neither, but embracing the external form of sexuality with the internal connection that is meant yes. to provide. That's harmony right there. That's that's right. It's, as you say, it's a similar thing. It's, it's science and religion. You need science, but it needs to be informed by spiritual values. Whereas uh, some religious people, they reject science. And then you end up with religious fundamentalism. You've got Galileo and various other things. And of course, you get a reaction against that. And sometimes people just emphasize science, scientific materialism, and you end up with secular communism. And the thing is, as you say, to get the balance. So you get incredibly technologically advanced and developed society, but it's also one in which people are living very meaningful lives. Mm. And the science is used for goodness. And But what gave birth to Hellenism? So. What was the precursor to Hellenism? Because that's probably an expression of something else. It's just like... So that's what that's one of my interests then, is about these... Where did the Hellenistic worldview come from? As I said, like, you know, philosophers, they're always asking why, why this, why that? And of course, the pre-Socratics, they want to know, well, what's the nature of reality? What are things made of? You know, some would say, well, it's fire. Some would say it's water, some air. You know, you have a whole variety of different ways of trying to make sense of the nature of reality. And one of the greatest of these philosophers was Pythagoras, who, you know, we all come across right-angle triangles. The Pythagoras didn't just do geometry to make, try and make sense of nature reality. He's also a religious leader, he had his own religious cult. And of course, there were teachings. And he tried to explain, this is how he saw the nature reality. But it wasn't just the way he saw the nature reality, it's the common way in which people in Greece saw the nature reality. And so Bertrand Russell described Pythagoras as the most influential philosopher ever. And he wow. shaped what goes on inside our inner world. And he influenced Basically, Plato is a Pyth followed Pythagoras, Aristotle, and everybody. So Pythagoras tried to describe the nature of reality. He came up with what he calls a table of opposites. Aristotle recorded them, these table of opposites. And these table of opposites, he got, okay, something's either male or female, either left or right, either up or down, either square or oblong, either left or right, and also either good or evil. And so he had these two columns. In one column was male, right, good, order. And the other column was chaos, female, left, evil, and various other things. And Aristotle himself said, everything in the one column is associated with goodness. Everything in the other column is associated with evil. Yeah. <laughs> and you think about it. What is the right thing to do? Right is good. What is the Latin word for left is sinister, evil. Uh -huh. What happened to left-handed people through history? They were regarded with suspicion try to make force into right with the right hand. You know, the word truth in Russian is pravda, it also means right. And so for, from Pythagoras, then there's this moral overlay on the language. So would you like to be described as a positive person or a negative person? Yeah, positive. So if you think about elect are protons good and electrons evil? <laughs> so you have I, I'm going to take a neutral stance on that debate. So positive <laughs> and negative, then, they're, they're neutral. Yeah. There's no moral overlay at the level of atoms. But then when it comes to this other level, suddenly positivity, like right, like male, like et cetera, become morally good and negatives associated with evil. So when we look at the unification view of dual characteristics, you get male, female, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but there's no moral overlay. There's no good and evil in those columns. But in Pythagoras' columns, there was. So this is the way the Greeks were dualists. This is the way they saw the nature of reality. One of the first stories the first woman is associated with evil because she was beautiful evil. And there's an association there of femininity with evil. And then this idea is then they permeate the stories 
and then they feed into European culture. And that's where the Puritans got their stuff from. That's where Augustine got his view of sexuality from. It's bananas because these people, these Marks, they're digging in the right place and they're finding some real important discussion points that we need to address. But their conclusions are always off because they themselves are highly dysfunctional people. So the therefores are, you. therefore, we must kill these people. Like, whoa, 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 you kind of missed That's it. Right. So this is why people say, I'm non-binary. So you have to say, well, what do you mean by that? What are the binaries of which you are not? Well, people reject binary opposites. Well, what are binary opposites? Well, that's Pythagoras, male and female. And yeah. so from Pythagoras, yeah. then you get these stereotypes, either in this column or you're in that column. So along with the male, in terms of you know the physical form comes certain expectations of gender. A man is this, a man is that, a man is the other. And along with woman, as well as being evil, got, again, certain kind of roles that a woman is expected to conform to, certain mm-hmm. kinds of stereotypical things. So there's a moral overlay, but also you get this gender stereotypes. They should be like this, and they should be like that. And of course, it's the fallen. The way the fallen world was assumed to be normal. And so those fallen stereotypes became what regarded as what the way things should be. You should conform to our gender expectations. So when people are saying I'm non-binary, what they're rejecting is the dysfunctional, distorted, fallen view of sexuality and the fallen view of binaries, which are binary opposites. And so the whole thing with Pythagoras is good and evil. So there's a constant conflict between good and evil, between right and left, between male and female. And so fast forward 2,000 years, and you've got Marx thesis antithesis one trying to destroy and eliminate the other man this we need to sit down with pythagoras and just we need that time machine and just give him a talk you're a smart guy <laughs> yeah that's really insightful because that duality is always perceived as conflict like you're saying there's some yes. or there's insecurity because one doesn't know the other there's a lack of communication and yeah. therefore there's misinterpretation which leads to conflict it's almost like a prophecy Whereas, yeah, that duality is actually meant to be complementary. It's meant to be like a dance. Yes. Uh, That's really interesting. And yeah, just that moral overlay is like a filter that you're adding to this topic that just screws everything up. It distorts everything. But you know what's interesting? When you were saying this thing about binary discussion, which is so heated, and people say, I'm non-binary, that discussion is always so binary. (laughs) Because it's like, you either agree with me because I say this or That's you're right. bad. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Can't we just discuss where are you coming from from this? Again, that lack of conversation and understanding yes. is where we start a conflict. That's right. That's the whole dynamic of Pythagoras. It's either this side is dominating that way. Yeah. But now yeah. it's swung back. Oh, let's get rid of all the dead white males. And yeah. now it's swung yeah. the other way. But they're both locked within the same dialectic. It's either we're dominating you or you're dominating us. And that's what you get with Marx as well. And that's, you're right. So, and that's where you get cancel culture from. So again, from Aristotle and the way that Pythagoras has been interpreted, one side tries to eliminate the other. And Pythagoras has been described as one column tries to eliminate the other column. Endlessly, endlessly. It just takes different shapes, manifests in different ways. So, but again, I hate to bring it back. This just where kind of we're steeped in, that is essentially where porn lives is it's always about dominance of one over the other. And one person has to lose in porn. There's no mutual beneficiaries in porn. There's always somebody that has to lose in order for porn to serve its purpose, which is a game of dominance. 
Yeah, uh, and that again, it's male should be dominating the female, and that's a lot of where it comes from. And of course, that feeds into what we would call a fallen nature, the fallen aspect of what it is to be a man, the sort of archangelic nature wanting to dominate and control. Can we unravel that a bit though? Because there are certain characteristics that are more common to men because of the way that our brains operate. There are certain expressions of masculinity that are actually natural. Yes. <laughs> That's such a dangerous word to use. Natural. But like that are kind of inborn. But then yeah. there are many that are interpreted like a soft voice or, you know, to be effeminate that is characterized as being, you know, having something to do with your sexuality, but it's just a different expression of masculinity. But like, at what point, you know, it's quite confusing because there's epigenetics plays into this or genetics in general. There's, there's upbringing, there's like who your parents were, there's exposure to, so like, how do you sort all that out? That's pretty messy. Right. I mean, again, going back to Pythagoras, you're either in one column or the other. The principal view of the nature of reality is dual characteristics like the yin and yang symbol, within every, the yang, there's a little yin. Within the yin, there's a little yang. So within every man, there's feminine aspect. Within every woman, there's a masculine aspect. And so it's not based on these, either you're this or you're that. And so, yeah, so some men have, you know, especially as they get older, more of a feminine kind of softer nature. Women, you know, some women have more of a masculine kind of character. But that doesn't mean they're in the wrong body. It just means there's a spectrum. So when you look at the spectrum, there's sort of an overlap. There's some men who are quite feminine and some women are quite masculine, but they're still men or they're still women. So can you just say that in the yin-yang symbol, the degree of black and white in each half, it's not necessarily the same as it's drawn, where like the black inside the white can be much bigger than just the little ball. Because the way that that conjures is, yes, we know that chemically that every man has some amount of estrogen. That's right, yeah. That's the chemical, but the degree to which he is feminine in substance, I guess that's the question I have is like, you know, we associate even like a walk or a manner of speaking, like a cadence with, with a gender. So is that fallen? Is that just assumption? That's a little confusing to me. I mean, a lot, I mean, a lot of the, yeah, so you say some of these things are biological, you know, either you're XY or X. X. I mean, you know, the number of people who are confused at a chromosomal level is microscopic. Usually they can't reproduce anyway. So either XX or XY. But then on top of that biology, then there's certain the physical body shape. But then as well, you have certain kind of cultural assumptions about a man and a woman. And sometimes people feel they don't fit with these cultural assumptions that people are imposing on them or, pre- you know, and then sure. they can get confused. So the problem, I would say, is when we look at these cultural assumptions, what it is to be a man or what it is to be a woman, well, you know, the classic 1950s, the man is polishing his car and the woman is polishing the the saucepan, and both of them are really happy. (laughs) So a lot of women didn't want to fit into that. And so the problem is that the cultural assumptions, I would say, are fallen. And people are often rejecting and rebelling against the fallen assumptions and cultural expectations. But at the same time, they may end up getting confused. So they may think, well, I feel like this and this and this. Maybe I'm a woman in a man's body, or maybe I'm a man in a woman's body. And that leads to that kind of confusion because they think, well, I'm not, I don't conform to these cultural expectations. Therefore, maybe there. So I think the problem is that people, you know, a lot of the cultural expectations are fallen, you might say. It also seems to point back to Pythagoras, right? That yeah. if I don't fit into this, then therefore I must fit into this other alternative, well, which right, is being yeah. projected either, by society. 
either one or the other, yeah. Yeah, because like this morning before this call, I made breakfast for the family. I made lunch for everybody. I packed their stuff. I put it all neatly into little bins wow. and I sent them off to school. And I was kind of like the atypical housewife, but then now I'm also doing this. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. it's this right. confusing <laughs> time where there's no yeah. precedent because everything we have a reference point to, yeah. we don't really fit into. Most people, I think a lot of people don't. So then we're discovering what masculinity is in a sense. What is true masculinity? Yes. And that's quite confusing. Yeah. Or I don't know, not confusing, but it's new territory. Yeah. And there's going to be a lot of debate, I would say. Right. So you need new stories, I would say. Okay. In, in Which, the form of what? Well, great novels. Well, I mean, great literature. You know, Jane Austen, Tolstoy. You know, you can see these characters developing, men, women. You can see the good ones. You can see the ones which are flawed, while everybody's flawed in some way or another. And, you know, I think through good literature, which expresses this kind of vision of a different kind of masculinity and femininity, I think that can appeal to people. It makes so much sense. For myself as a teenager, I used to read lots of classic romantic stuff. The Brontes, Wuthering Heights, Jane Austen, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And for me, reading this, it awoke all kinds of emotions and feelings that I never experienced before because they're entering into these different characters and feeling what they were feeling. Sometimes I'd be laughing, sometimes I'd be crying. But just in that kind of very safe environment, I was able to explore all these very intense kind of emotions. And then, of course, you know, it's only in... in, only in not in a, with another human being, just I could explore all these things. And of course, you know, you read Thomas Hardy and you see, well, you go that way, you end up in, ugh. Anyway, I just remember reading one Thomas Hardy novel and afterwards feeling so depressed. <laughs> but then I realized it's because of what sexuality in that relationship, and that's where it ended up. So in that sense, these classic authors, they were very realistic because they were describing this is the way life really is. It's not like James Bond, who goes around sleeping with everybody with no consequences. Sure, sure. But these classical authors, they were describing the nature of reality. If you go along this path, you end up here. If you go along that path, you end up here. And, you know, a good author has a variety of characters and they all end up, start off in certain places and they end up in different places. And where they end up depends upon the decisions that they make and the kind of relationship they get involved with. But what you're suggesting, what started this topic of conversation was that we need news stories, right? So we do have some very creative people that listen to this, that in our community who, I mean, honestly... We, you and I, and I would say most of the listeners are of the mind that we're on the precipice of a new world, one which has no precedent and that needs some definition. And we need to provide that information by right. projecting what we would like to see exist in the future. You know, understanding the mistakes that we made in the past, but also really starting to define. And that's what sexual integrity is to us, is like having a very strong vision for what it means to be a healthy individual. In, as it pertains to sex. So these stories, if we don't have the novels necessarily yet in existence, we need to start, I guess, it starts with conversations like this. Yeah, yeah. And then elaborating and understanding, kind of digging into figuring out what this means to us. And then also creating songs, creating art yeah. to help us yeah. remember yes. the future that doesn't yet, hasn't shown itself. But I think that future will start to... I was just listening to this guy who was talking about the fact that when you're a part of a system, any system, it doesn't matter how small the piece of the system is. If that 
piece reacts in a certain way, it impacts the entire system. That's of a human body, but it's also of, you know, he was talking in terms of totalitarianism, where even if you're just a small piece in this big machine, your actions yeah. do matter. There is a cascade yeah. effect. So if that's true, which I do believe it is, then every single time we start sorting through what it is that we would like to be building, this future that makes sense, what does it mean to be a man in a healthy society, in a healthy community? Like We have to start defining that and practicing that in order for it to ever come about. The stories that we are being exposed to regularly are from Netflix, Disney Plus, it's all the streaming services. Those are now our bastions of information. And I don't think they're going to come up with the answers. Every once in a while, they'll be like, you know, wow, you know, Pixar seems to have some nuggets of wisdom, but I don't think these stories exist yet is what I'm getting at. But I don't know yeah. how to get them out into the world necessarily. No. I mean, there are some, I mean, good classical in Christian literature is rise. It's like that. It's very uplifting. It lifts up the soul. Okay. It gives the soul a vision of what it is to be a perfect person, to have a perfect soul. Nowadays, the emphasis on what it is to have a perfect body. But good Christian literature, like the ones I was talking about, is emphasizing developing your soul, developing your attitude, developing how you relate to people, preserving your sexual purity, amongst other things, and explaining why, what it is to be chaste, not in a puritanical kind of way that sex is bad, but in a very good kind of way with a vision of you know a beauty of sexual love after marriage you know ivan Illich, who is an austrian catholic priest and anarchist he said if you want to change the world you have to change the story and that's true so i don't know what kind of stories your children are reading at school but a lot of the new storybooks that children are given at school reflect the modern politically correct woke culture and vision of sexuality and family and sexual relationships etc so these kind of ideas have been introduced very, very early through those kind of storybooks. So we need to have other storybooks that present right from the beginning for children. And classical Christian stories are like that. There was a king and a queen. They were unhappy. Why were they unhappy? Because they didn't have any children. Then one day, queen became pregnant, baby was born, and they're really happy. So when a child hears that, for him, the king and the queen, that's mom and dad. Before I was born, mom and dad were unhappy. When I was born, mom and dad were really happy because I'm the fruit of their love. And of course, as the story goes on, the princess meets a prince. And of course, there's all kinds of challenges that both of them go through till they end up with a happy ending. So again, the vision at the end is of marriage. But these kind of things are now regarded as being politically incorrect. But we need to recover that classical Christian literature, as well as generate our own. Because when you read some of these things, they're quite archaic in the language. Yeah. They need to be rewritten. But you need to preserve the same original and better values, you might say. So can you repeat exactly? He said, if you want to control the world, you control the story or you change, change. Oh, you want to change the world. If you want to change the world, you have to change the story. Yeah. Because the stories that we hear, this populates our world. If you read the Greek myths, that affects your world. This is your worldview is based upon those stories. Yeah. If you read Grimm's fairy stories, that affects your whole inner world, psychology. Those are the stories that, in which we understand ourselves. You know, we relate to the, ourselves. We tell our own life in terms of a story. We are, in that sense, we're a story. And the stories that we hear shape our inner world. And, of course, that's why it's so important that children should be growing up with good stories. I agree, yeah. So if you think about what Father Moon was doing, right at the, towards the end of his life, he went travel around the world and giving these peace messages. And I thought, all he's doing is just retelling the story of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. But he's retelling the old story, but he's telling it differently. 
So the way that I would say the way that Christians have understood that story of Adam and Eve is mistaken. So what Father's doing is taking the old story, but he's retelling the story in a different way. And so by telling this old story in a different way about Jesus as well, he's changing the way in which people think about all these things. I love it. I really do love that a lot. I took a deep breath when he said it the first time, because that's primarily what we're working on on an individual basis. We have many groups going for husbands, for wives, for young people who are unplugging from their online life and a lot of what they do in their time because it's giving them this chaotic feedback. And we're trying to help them plug into something that gives them vitality. And that really is changing how they feel about themselves. And we also have to help them figure out what they want to think about themselves. That's the story about themselves. What we've seen also is the more people that do this work, the more that the cascade effect takes place. And because people are believing, oh, if they can do it, I can do it. Because the overarching story of what's possible changes. And that's really, really important. A lot of people honestly don't believe that marriage is possible. They want it. They deeply want it. I know many friends personally who would never admit it, but it's what they want most and it's what they fear most. So it's what they reject first. Because the story they have in their head is that it's impossible because that's what we get from movies is marriage is the hardest thing in the world and it's not worth it. Don't even try. Uh, Most movies are not about marriage anyway. It's about people sleeping around with each other. Yeah. Anyway, I think that is so, so important. And stories are, the storytelling is changing. There's the meme storytelling of the TikTok generation. There's longer form through YouTube. There's still books being produced and all that. But if you're listening to this, I really challenge you to think about the stories that you believe about what's possible for yourself, your own life, but also think about the future that we're creating together. And like, what do you think is possible? And what story are you telling about the future? Because if you go to certain storytellers like the news, they'll tell you that there's nothing good possible for the future. We're all dead. Just don't even try. Just stories are so important. Because, yeah. you know, if you ask someone, tell me about yourself, yeah. they'll tell you the story. And you hear a person's story, that is an expression of their attitudes to the world, their assumptions. Two people can go through the same experience, but tell it very differently. Why they tell it differently? Because they experience it differently, because they have certain different assumptions. And then again, as you say, if you listen to somebody else's story, then you can be inspired and think, wow, that person did that, but I can do that too. That's why I often li- like listening to people's stories. And read biographies, autobiographies. It gives you, you can realize then, okay, just because this is my past, it doesn't mean my future is predestined or determined. Mm. Because, you know, you look at people, you know, all kinds of people come from a terrible kind of background, awful background, but they end up doing extraordinary things. And you realize, well, my past does not determine my future. My future is still open, depending upon how I respond to my present. I can create a different kind of future and stories and a different kind of story. Yeah, I I really do love it. So please, everybody, pay attention to the stories that you're listening to. I was just on a call yesterday with somebody who realized that the music that they listen to, they're all stories, these short stories, but they're hypnotic because they're melodic and they they really like sink into you because you repeat it again and again and again. But these are all stories. They're all just different forms of stories. So how are you ingesting stories? What is it telling? What is all this accumulating inside of you into? What are you believing? And how can you change the story of this world? 
to be something more positive. That's a huge outcome that I think we can all take away because this is absolutely, you can start right now with digging into the stories that you believe and also rewriting the stories that you believe yeah. based on what you would like to believe. It's all yeah. optional, participation-based. So that was a lot. I think there's so much there. That was really good. I didn't anticipate us going to some of these places, but I'm really nice. glad we did. Do you like it when people email you? Should we include your email? Oh, I yeah. No, I, I, I always reply. I love it when people ask questions or ask me com or give me comments. So yeah, I love that. Yeah. Awesome. So we'll include your email in the show notes. So everybody, if you have questions, please ask Uncle William. This is, by the way, just a typical conversation. I remember you... <laughs> <laughs> We met like under the stairs in right. Bad Camberg and we, I think we were supposed to be going somewhere, but we stopped yeah. and I just couldn't stop asking you questions. So this is great. We had some really good conversations. I remember them very well. Yeah, me as well. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you for showing up and for enlightening us all. And if you guys have any questions, again, we'll include his email and he likes the questions. So inundate him with questions. He's got a lot of answers. Thanks, Andrew. God bless you. God bless everyone. Thanks. Take care. Hello everybody, Andrew Love here for one last announcement, and that is, I encourage you to join our newsletter. We don't spam people, we give you the goods, we give you good quality information once a week in your email. And so we send out newsletters probably Saturdays mid-morning on average, and these are filled with blogs, the latest content, Everything you need to know in order to get through your week with high noon light. So let us light up your inbox. Join our newsletter by going to highnoon.org. It's all right there. It's super easy. We won't spam you. We just want to let you stay connected to this high noon providence. So go to highnoon.org and sign up for our newsletter.